I have been many women in my lifetime. I have been the protector and the provider. I have been the lover and the fighter. But the woman within I value the most will always be the survivor. S.L. Heaton I have superpowers. There you go. I said it. Secrets out. <laughs> okay, but really, like, I do. Right from the get-go, I was always the kid who felt too much. I had these enormous emotions. Bigger than me. Bigger than all my friends were feeling. Bigger than the world. Just big giant emotions that I never knew how to handle. I was never given those tools. And on top of that, I had this issue with always feeling, feeling other people's emotions, not knowing how to separate them from my own. I had no idea whose emotions were whose. I just knew that I was feeling emotions with no real idea as to why. Like, why am I feeling this emotion? I don't really feel like I should be, but this person is feeling that, and then now I'm feeling it, and this just doesn't make much sense to me. I've always been an empath. I didn't know this at the time, obviously. I just thought there must be something wrong with me to be feeling such big feelings at, I don't know, nine years old? My dad, of course, considered this to be dramatic. We weren't allowed to feel emotions in our house. If I watched something on TV that made me sad or, like, read about something online that was completely heartbreaking, I would cry for them and feel their pain and not understand what the hell was happening to me. My dad would say, If you keep crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. That didn't stop me <laughs> from feeling what I was supposed to be feeling, though. It just made me want to not feel them out loud. I mean, there's, n there's actually no reason I should be talking about this as if it were past tense. I'm still such a feeler and such a sensitive person to the world around me. I mean, I wouldn't say it's as catastrophic as it was back then, just because now I know... And now I understand how to, like, set boundaries for myself. I know how to deal with these big emotions. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes I don't. I, I don't know if I'm making much sense right now. So let me, let me give you some examples so you know what I'm talking about. So my family and I, as dysfunctional as it was, we really liked watching American Idol. And every season, they dedicate this, like, I think it was only one show. Maybe it was more than one. But there was at least one show they set as Idol Gives Back. 
I can't remember, like, what exactly went down. It was charity work, or they were doing something to help somebody or some cause. All I know is that this one year, they were in Africa trying to aid in, I think, I'm pretty sure it was the malaria crisis. Carrie Underwood was on that season. She, I don't know. She was either competing that season or came back after she had competed. But regardless, Carrie Underwood was there and she sang a cover of I'll Stand By You. And it was just like a little montage thing of her singing it. And it showed pictures of these people in need and children crying and starving. Or maybe not starving, but like suffering from malaria you know, I was distraught, to say the least. I wanted to know what to do to help. And I'm not even like, I don't even think I was 10 years old at the time. I just became fixated on this problem I saw on TV. There we are again, me getting obsessed with things. I just kept thinking, you know, what can I do? How can I help these people do? I need to get on a plane right now and go over there and help them out. Following by like, crying for the pain that I saw on their faces while Carrie Underwood sang, and the pain of watching her see it and empathizing with how that would feel for me. My dad, of course, here we go again. You don't need to cry over problems in Africa. There are problems we hear we need to fix first in America. We weren't allowed to feel. I spent so much time in my adolescence pushing down these strong and heavy feelings or any feelings at all because we weren't allowed to. We weren't allowed to feel out loud. You can go in your room and cry and hopefully nobody will walk in on you or anything, but other than that, don't show emotion. It's insane, really, because you learn to do that because that's what you're taught. But then you grow up and your therapist and friends and everyone else tells you it's wrong and you have to unlearn it. You have to unlearn everything that you've been taught. I think so much of my life, so so much of my 21 years of life have just been me unlearning trauma from my childhood. I feel like the majority of my life is going to be that way. But hey, you know, we love it. We love a glow up. We love learning how to overcome our... Okay, anyways. um, <laughs> So another example. In sixth grade, there was that... Do you guys remember that huge um, earthquake? It was an earthquake followed... Or no, yes. It was an earthquake followed by a tsunami in Japan. It caused, like, so much devastation and so much wreckage. I felt so deeply and strong for it too. I made this video for the relief efforts and it was like one of those things you can make on Vimeo. Like you find a bunch of, um, you find a bunch of like pictures on Google and you put it all into something and you can put a song underneath and like write on the title things, just a very amateur video. It wasn't anything big. It wasn't it wasn't Ellen worthy or anything, <laughs> but I basically wanted to spread the word about it to our entire middle school or no. Okay. It wasn't middle school here in Texas. We had kindergarten through fifth grade and elementary school. And then we had fifth and sixth grade in what they call intermediate school. 
and then 7th and 8th in middle school, and then 9th through 12th in high school. I said something about intermediate school to somebody one time, and they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? What the fuck is intermediate school? So I just thought that if nobody knew what I was talking about, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't middle school, it was intermediate school. Basically, no one gave a shit about my video. They were all just like, oh, cool, that's really sad, but I'm uh, trying to play dodgeball in PE class, so like, peace out. I, w I have spent so much time caring about things, and then like, people around me are just like, oh, that's sad, or oh, that's cool. Anyways, bye. Like, so I read a book about this girl who I wish for the life of me I could remember her name, but I can't. She got really sick after the U.S. dropped the um, the atomic bomb on Japan after World War II, where I'm probably mixing up my history right now. I was really good at history, but now it's just all gone. <laughs> you can thank the drugs for that. But anyways, <laughs> um, she had gotten, I think it was leukemia, from the atomic bomb and the radiation and all that stuff. I'm totally messing this up right now. I'm just butchering this. But so she was really sick. And according to a Japanese legend, if you folded 1,000 of those origami paper cranes, you get a wish. She, in the book, she, I can't remember if it was an autobiography or whatever, or maybe somebody was just telling the story. But basically, she spent her time folding these origami cranes when she was sick and when she was going through treatment and in the hospital and stuff. I can't remember if she ever got to a thousand cranes or not, but her story and her paper cranes, it became like a symbol for life after the bomb, for peace after the bomb and after World War II. So after reading this book... My sensitive and big-feeling ass decided to do something that would, you know, shake up the entire country of Japan. I wanted all of Japan to know that there would be life after the tsunami, after the destruction. <laughs> oh, God. So, I pretty much, I got to folding. I read so many books on origami. It was ridiculous. Just, like, checking out book after book after book in our library. And it's funny because now if you ask me to fold something, I <laughs> wouldn't be able to tell you how. But back then, I learned how to make so many different things. But, like, I could do, like, the frogs. I could do the butterflies. I could whatever else, something else. I'm sure there's something else. But I was really, I was really focused on the cranes because I wanted to get to 1,000 cranes. And, of course... My thought process was 1,000 cranes equals a wish, and my wish would be for peace. Oh, I'm so sweet. I could, like, throw up with the naive nature of my younger self. We still love her, though. Love you. Love you, younger self. But yeah, 1,000 cranes. I made them, like, crazy. So here's me, once again, becoming obsessed with something. I couldn't do hardly, like, anything but fold cranes. Make cranes. Wake up, make cranes. Eat, make cranes. Sleep, make cranes. Repeat. 
<laughs> so, like, everyone in school was like, what the fuck is this girl doing? <laughs> Why is she folding so many of these grains? People would actually be like, why are you folding birds? And I'm like, it's not a fucking bird, you idiot. It's a fucking crane. And I'm going to fold a thousand of them so I can get a wish and save Japan. Like, what the fuck do you think this is? Come on. I I don't got time for you. <laughs> but actually, I persuaded, I think, like a few of my classmates to help out. And we actually did get to the goal of a thousand paper cranes. We packed them up in some, like, shipping boxes in one of our teacher's classrooms, who was pretty supportive of the idea, and she sent them to Japan. I thought, in my head, this would be revolutionary. All of Japan would just erupt in applause and tears because the best thing in the world had arrived to save them a thousand origami cranes from some kid in the middle of nowhere. We are saved. We don't have to worry about anything else for the rest of our lives. Those origami cranes did not, in fact, save Japan. I, you know... I have to give my younger self props for trying, though. Her heart was too pure. Still kind of is sometimes, but... I mean, like... These big emotions are such a blessing sometimes. Because, not to get too cheesy too fast, but... I always say that I'd rather be the person who feels too much... Than the person who doesn't feel anything at all. I've always been that person, and... You know, I love that about myself. I got a lot of shit for it for a lot of years from a lot of different people. Just like, you need to stop feeling so much. Or you're feeling too much. This doesn't involve you. So you don't need to feel it. But I, I, I'm proud of myself. I love that about myself. I love that I feel. And sorry if you disagree. <laughs> One last story to convince you before we get into like the nitty gritty of this episode about how out of the way I was with these big, enormous feelings. These feeling, feeling, feelings. Big ones. <laughs> oh god, this one is so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. Okay, so we had a cat. My mom, bless her heart, she gave me this cat to me. She, obviously, she gave me this cat as like a gift... Or, yeah, just like a gift whenever I was sad because my ex-best friend, this person, moved away. I named this cat Cat Patricia. <laughs> it was a play on Fat Patricia, like Fat Amy from the Pitch Perfect movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get it. Okay. So anyways, Cat Patricia was a strange cat. I mean, all cats are pretty strange. I think they're... I mean, I love some cats, but some cats just are, like, really weird. She she especially was really, really weird. One night, by mistake, someone let her outside. She wasn't supposed to go outside. She was an inside cat. But she went outside. I think she was gone for the whole night. And she came back. And after that one escape outside... She would always want to go outside after that. Always. She was just screeching at the back door until someone let her outside. And, of course, it's annoying as hell. So, so it turns out, on one of her escapades outside, 
little miss cat patricia had a steamy exchange with one of the stray cats in our neighborhood and she ended up getting pregnant really young too like she she wasn't even a year old when she got pregnant which of course what is that in cat ages or dog do cats have lives like you always say dog years but is there cat years too interesting okay anyways <laughs> oh my god i keep going off topic cat patricia after getting pregnant at a very young age, you know, we were really accepting when she came and told us. We supported her, you know, like the loving parents that we were. Um, she gave birth in my mom's closet at like 5 a.m. one morning. It was fucking disgusting. If I never have to watch some, someone, something give birth again, I'll be perfectly happy. <laughs> Everyone's always like, Oh my God, the miracle of life. But it traumatized me watching this cat give birth. Traumatized me. I can still like picture. Bruh, I'm trying to fucking record here. Can you not? We live in an apartment complex now because we just moved. And there's a whole bunch of other people around now. So it's not the same. So I do have to hold for like sounds <clears throat> how fucking rude am i right okay cat patricia ended up giving birth to four beautiful kittens all was merry a beautiful loving family until this one morning so i'm sleeping halfway sleeping really i'm kind of awake but still trying to fall back to sleep my door opens and i hear this sniffling <laughs> it was my mom and she was crying so i couldn't understand her and i was half asleep anyway so i just when she left my room i just tried to go back to sleep and then my younger sister amber just bust through my door and said taylor wake up cat patricia killed her kittens i i jolted up and i sprang into the living room where my mom was bringing the dead kittens out of her room so what happened was she woke up that morning and heard, like, she had a giant bed, white sheets, white comforter, white pillowcases, everything. She woke up to Cat Patricia burying her bloody kittens in her white sheets. Like, what a way to wake up in an actual graveyard. We have no idea to this day why she killed them. We have, like, our theories. Maybe she was too young. We didn't really touch the kittens or play with them at all. So, I mean, we, honestly, we have no idea. But luckily enough, our dog at the time had saved one of the kittens. So the dog, like, interfered with the cat trying to get to the kitten after the dog saw her kill the previous three. And our dog, Macy, saved the kitten. It was really a, like, a heroic scene. The other three kittens, it was just a horror scene. Cat Patricia had snapped two of their necks and then, and then ate one of their stomachs. It was awful. I feel like anyone listening is having the same reaction I was, which is just like, what? How does that even 
why does that even happen? This person, the one we talk so much about, um, had taken the three dead kittens and thrown them in an old McDonald's bag. Then they threw the McDonald's bag into the dumpster outside for the kitten's resting place. They kept fighting me and not letting me go outside to get the McDonald's bag out of the dumpster. Told me I was being too dramatic, they, I was feeling too much, that they are just dead, and that's that. I went outside, reached into the dumpster, and took this McDonald's bag out with grease stains and everything on it. It was grease stains, I promise. It wasn't cat stains. Um, I got a shoebox, I got some tissue paper, and I got some ribbon. This is so embarrassing. Just because... It happened when I was, like, 17, 18 years old. It sounds like something, like, a five-year-old would do, but, like I said, big emotions. I sat on the living room floor, and I took each dead kitten out of the McDonald's bag, breaking down harder and harder with just crying as I picked out each of them, especially the one with the stomach eaten out. That was horrifying. And I wrapped them individually in the tissue paper. And then I placed them in the shoebox to be buried outside. Like I said, big emotions. Those are more of like the extreme stories, but I think by now you get to the point. I'm a drama queen. (laughs) Just kidding. We love her ability to feel things that not many other people feel. It's like... It's like one of those defies all human powers things. (laughs) I think, like, I genuinely believe that everyone in some way or, okay, maybe not everyone, but most people, at least the good ones, I believe have superpowers of their own. And maybe, maybe you're just born with it or maybe something incredible or like traumatic happens to you for you to get your powers. Like, how Spider-Man was bit by a spider or whatever. I truly and honestly have zero education in superheroes, so I'm sure there's someone out there right now that's like, um, actually, Spider-Man didn't really get his powers like that. It was actually... (sighs) Anyways, I make fun, but that's exactly how I am with movies. It's embarrassing how uptight and know-it-all I am when it comes to movies. I will pause a movie and say, it's actually really funny because this line was improvised. Or like, did you know that this, that in this scene, the entire world was ending outside, but you would have never even known on screen because the actors were so good at their job and they just kept doing what they're... It's like my favorite thing to do. (laughs) So if you're like that with Spider-Man, trust me, I hold no judgment at all. I feel you. So yes, superpowers. My spidey senses, my way of feeling and connecting to emotions, they tend to come in handy when I have problems. And the older I got, the more issues I started to face. With the more issues I started to face, the more big emotions I had. I can't honestly tell you a time in my life that I've lived without some sort of depression or anxiety. Everyone's like, 
Yeah, no shit. You were abused as a kid and lived in a toxic household. That makes perfect sense. Of course it does. Now. But like I've said before, when you're going through it, it doesn't feel like it makes sense. You feel abnormal. You feel like there's something wrong with you. A lot of the origin of my mental health issues can be traced back to my family. So we talked about last week how my, I think my addiction stems from my grandfather and my dad, but there's a whole other side to a lot of it that stems from my grandma, my grandma on my dad's side. My grandmother, as we have sort of kind of learned already, was raised in a completely different environment than anyone else in our family. She was an orphan. She lived in an orphanage that's actually not far from where I live right now, maybe like 30 minutes max. She was raised in a way that just seems like archaic now. And I mean like full-fledged, like if you've seen the movie Annie, that's how her orphanage was. Insane polishing and like cleaning of every centimeter, wearing old and dirty clothes, not being able to wear a bra until a certain age, even if your boobs were fully developed before then, like hers were. Again, to make this crystal clear, I am in no way excusing the actions of someone who has caused so much harm to so many people. But looking into her life, I can also see how she turned out the way she did, and why she had her own ideas of how to raise children and grandchildren. From the second we could walk and talk, she was trying to shape us into who she thought we should be. Actually, in preparation for this episode, I asked um, my two cousins, Haley and Hannah, and my sister Amber, for some examples of what she would say to us. So here's what I got back. Okay. One, she always wanted us to wear makeup and have our hair and nails done. Always. Whether it was going to Walmart or going to eat, whatever. Before we left the house, we had to be presentable by her standards. This meant full makeup and hair anytime we left their house. Two, We couldn't sit with our legs apart. Our grandma had this ideology of being ladylike. And she wasn't afraid to call us out for anything she deemed to be, or deemed to not be, ladylike. No slouching, no elbows on the table. Ladies keep their voices down. Ladies don't act like that in public. But then, at the same time, teach us what ladies are like, which is her famous catchphrase of shoulders back, suck in, and boobs out. This was to attract um, gentlemen callers, if you will. We are like 11, 10, 9, 7 years old at the time, and she's instilling this in us of what a woman should look like, act like, and sound like. If we so much as questioned her, she would resort to calling us whores, or sluts. Yeah, there's that. (laughs) So we had a lot of sleepovers, me and my cousins. Um, The four of us would buddy up to bathe together. 
I guess it saved water or it was easier or whatever. Haley with me, Hannah with Amber. When we were really, really, really little, our grandma would draw our bath for us while we got undressed and she would put in the bubble bath. She would get everything ready. This one time, I remember standing there completely naked. I was really little in front of her and she looked at me with like these wide eyes and looked me up and down and she said to me "Ooh, taylor you gotta work on that tummy ladies don't have tummies like that you gotta stop eating so much it was again one of those moments that i feel like everything changed after that i would go the rest of my life with a poor self-image after that and of course it wasn't just that one moment. But I do think that a lot of my self-image problems stemmed from the way my grandmother talked to us. And maybe also because of the atmosphere and because I would eventually be a teenage girl, I was pretty much predisposed to have horrible self-image issues, but I wish I could have held off on that for a few years. Because after that, it was... It was all downhill from there. I started looking at my, like, my naked body in the mirror more. Pinching at my chub, picking at my face. All the girls on TV, or, like, in my favorite movies, were teeny tiny. I was the chubby girl with gap teeth who grew boobs in the third grade. I never thought that I was ugly. Ever. I mean, I loved my face. I loved my eyes. I loved the freckles I get in the summertime. It was everything neck down that was an issue for me. Other loving and supportive family members of mine would, you know, reassure that I had such a beautiful hourglass figure. I saw it as I wasn't skinny, and that was enough for me to fall down this slippery slope. I wouldn't say that I've had an eating disorder. I don't think I can classify it as one individual thing. I wasn't anorexic because I would binge eat food like nobody's business. I would throw it up or I would take a laxative to get that food out of me. But I also wasn't bulimic because I would starve myself for weeks. I talk about this by classifying it as just disordered eating. I did it all. I had an issue with all of it. I've heard a lot of people say before that people who fall into eating disorders fall into them because it's the one thing they can control in a very chaotic life. And while I can see that and I can understand how that can happen for other people, for me, I always felt like it was out of control. I had no control over it. I couldn't stop. Food and me, food and I, have not <laughs> had a good relationship. I love food. And that's very, very hard for me to admit because I don't, I don't like eating. Does that make any sense? I mean, okay. So like, Food, for me, is a constant. And as a girl with 
severe, severe abandonment issues. Food was always something I could count on. I knew that eating that plate of spaghetti would make me feel better on the inside with everything going on because I loved spaghetti. I knew how it tasted. I knew that it made me really happy after I ate it. My problem came when I couldn't stop eating. I would eat and eat and eat because I was regulating my emotions with food. For however long I would be eating, I didn't have to feel the pain inside. And at the same time, I felt like I had to, like I needed to finish every last bite of food, afraid that it would run out and I'd never have it again. This is another embarrassing story. So I used to do this thing, probably when I was like 16 or 17, where I would eat, I would be home alone and I would eat. And then somebody would come home and say, hey, I just got home from work and I'm really hungry. Do you want to go eat somewhere? And of course, I had just had food, like just had a meal. But I would say yes anyways. And I would go and I would gorge myself. (sighs) And like, it's so embarrassing. And I don't know why I felt the need that I had to say yes. Something I haven't really worked out yet. Like, why did I feel like I needed to say yes, even though I was full? Like, when I would eat too much, I would immediately tell myself, you are such a failure. Look at what you've done. You're going to gain so much weight now, and because of that, you're you're not allowed to eat for a week. Like I was punishing myself or something. I mean, of course, I was. I abused myself and my body just like my dad did, except this time it was with food. Food is such, like, an intimate thing for me, especially eating around people. Like, mm, fuck no, I'm not going to do that unless I am just super comfortable with you. So this is how the bases go for most people, okay? First base, kissing and hand-holding. Second base, heavy petting. Third base, sex. For me, it's like, um, first base, uh, allowing you to barely just grace my skin with any part of your body, like a finger, barely allowing you to barely touch me. Second base, holding my hand because I like to feel safe. (laughs) Um, third base, uh, telling you about my childhood. Flash forward to, like, I don't know, 67th base sex, and then 1,987,000 base eating in front of you. It's, oh my god, I hate this. It's, like, extremely hard for me to eat in front of people. Because, I don't know. Okay, I have this thing. I have so many things. I have this thing where I'm paranoid that everyone is watching me, no matter what. If I'm walking or driving, I just have this paranoia that everyone is watching me. It especially comes into play 
when I am eating in public. I normally, like, order the easiest thing to eat at restaurants just because I'm so petrified that other people are watching me. And I will deliberately cancel plans with people if eating is involved. Nine times out of ten, I eat before I hang out with people so that I don't have to when I'm with them. Am I afraid that they will call me out or something? Like, (laughs) I mean, maybe. Or, like, say that I shouldn't be eating whatever's on my plate because I'm too fat? Something. I mean, (laughs) I gotta work it out because I'm telling you, it's so weird, man. And so selfish and narcissistic. Like, no, Taylor, no one in this smash burger is paying attention to how you eat your food. No one. No one. No one is watching you eat, you selfish prick. (laughs) Still, the issue stands. I've really treated my body like shit for years. For years. After the starving myself and purging myself and taking laxative after laxative after laxative, my body... My body has been through the ringer so bad, too. And I've paid, I've paid the price for it. Not to get, not to get too TMI on here, but my digestive system is shot. It's very painful for me. So even, even after going through those issues, I still have to go through it because of what I've done to my body. And it's, It's not worth it. It's not. It's not worth taking laxative after laxative so you can fit into your prom dress or eating only crackers and ranch your sophomore year of high school. It's it's not worth it. And anyone that is out there listening, if you're thinking about your body and how you think it has to change, great. Hold yourself accountable and get healthy in a healthy way, but not like this. Don't put yourself through that. Normally, I don't talk about things that I haven't figured out yet. So, like, in my past episodes, those are things that I've kind of figured out. I kind of have a more firm ground on it, a foundation on it. I sometimes want to come off as this person who is like, yep, overcame that, and look where I'm at now. So I'll preface this by saying, I still don't have this figured out. I still struggle with disordered eating to this day. It is so fucking hard. Diets don't work for me because it's how I slip back into, like, starving myself again. I can't eat free reign because then I eat everything all the time. It's scary. It's scary how attached I am to food because, like I said, I can't control it. I have fluctuated in weight more than anything in my life so far. I'll lose so much weight in a short amount of time and then gain it back. My skin is loose and stretch marked out after the, you know, the rapid weight loss and then the gain. It's something I struggle with 24-7. And I think it's important for people to know that and understand that I still struggle with it daily. I will say that 
I have found something that works without slipping into anything bigger, which is intermittent fasting. I eat two meals a day at specific times of the day. I don't snack. And so far, it's been really good for me. I don't know about like weight loss or anything because I don't check scales anymore because that, that is definitely a slippery slope. But so far, I feel a lot better altogether because of it, for sure. Along with like riding my bike and going on runs. Uh, I think it's because it's on a schedule and it's kind of like someone else is controlling it rather than me. Like, if I have control over something like that for myself, I'm fucked. <laughs> but if I see a schedule on Pinterest, that is, that's what I did. I can take hold of it and I'm good. I can eat at 12 and then at 9. I can follow instructions really well, but <laughs> for some reason, making them for myself is so difficult for me. Like, that's so weird. I don't understand it. You'd think that you could trust yourself more than anybody else. And, like, I'm really good at making schedules. Like, I like to have a little control over my life, I guess. I don't know. But for some freaking reason, I cannot do anything that has to do with eating. If somebody else does it for me, fine. I... I really got to figure that one out, too, because I have no idea what that is. I need to, yeah. But sharing that with you so that you understand the struggle and you know that it's okay. Or it's not okay, but, like, <laughs> I mean, you're not alone and you're not crazy. And it's something that a lot of people struggle with, and it sucks. I feel for you if you struggle with eating because I feel like that is one of the worst things to go through. It's bad because you have to do it. You have to eat. So, like, you are fucked. You can't just, like, not eat and get over it. Circling back to depression and anxiety, those are probably top tier for what I struggle with. The very first time I ever self-harmed, I was nine years old. Fuck, dude. My heart just, like, dropped into my stomach when I said that out loud. Nine years old. My dad was really, like, he was really big into apology gifts after one of his episodes. This one time, he got me an engraved, what is it, like, jewelry box, shadow box thing. It was really, like, the size of my hand, not too big. It was really pretty. He had it engraved with Family is Forever, Taylor Nicole. And then with it, there was this half-sphere paperweight thing and some stationery. Some real expensive shit to say he was sorry without actually like ever saying that he was sorry. I can't remember what had prompted me to do this, but I was up really late at night crying in my bedroom in hysterics. I'm in hysterics a lot, but I couldn't stop crying. I had his apology gift sitting on my nightstand, and I stopped crying. I took the paperweight and just started smashing it into my ankle, just with so much rage, smashing it over and 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 over, and over again. 
crying out in pain as I did because, like, it fucking hurt. But I kept going because it hurt. Because I wanted it to hurt. And then finally I just fell asleep. I woke up the next morning. My ankle was black and blue. I couldn't walk on it. We went to the doctor and I had hairline fractured my ankle by myself. I did it to myself. My motives for this were... It was never to get attention from people. I never wanted to go to school and people be like, Oh my gosh, you're in a boot. What happened to your ankle? My intentions were always to hurt myself. And that's like fucking sad as shit. But I mean, that's what it always was. We've touched on that a little bit. I'd say that I'm such a big lover for everyone around me. But to myself, I could never bring myself to love her. It was always, you deserve to be hurt. You deserve to suffer. You deserve all of this. I don't remember what I told my mom, but I know it wasn't the truth. It's not like I was going to go up to her and be like, guess what, mom? I broke my own ankle with that paperweight. Oh my God. That's so crazy. Like, I feel like no one does this. No one but me. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry, mom, if you're listening to this. Um, yeah, I lied about that. Oh, God. <laughs> it's so weird to talk about this stuff with the notion that my family members are listening because I know that they are. <laughs> so I have to try like really hard to forget about that in order to talk so open and honest about things. If I went through like this entire podcast thinking the entire time, oh my gosh, my mom is listening. I probably wouldn't say anything about anything and not to be like, oh, she's going to be mad at me. But like, I just don't want to like break her heart, you know, if that makes any sense. But hey, she's listening and it's her own choice. So love ya. (laughs) Sorry, I lied about the ankle break. And then when it happened again and when it happened again, although I will say I graduated from the paperweight to more sophisticated items of choice. Hammers. Mallets. <laughs> Jesus. This is horrifying. Oh, God. Anyways. This was just the beginning of self-harming at a very young age. And honestly, I can't remember even why. I mean, okay, I have theories. I think we all have theories. It all adds up. The home life, the self-image, the trauma, the everything. I was so extremely dark and twisty all of the time. All of the time. I had the secret Tumblr account. Do you guys remember Tumblr? It's been a long time since I've heard that. But I had a secret Tumblr account that I posted really sad and just really depressing shit on. I posted about, like, how people would be better off without me in the world. All of my sad thoughts were on display for the world to see. And it's not really like anyone I knew followed my secret and sad Tumblr account. So I was just, like, posting these things for anonymous and unknown people to read. I felt like there was no one around me that I trusted to confide in about how, like, 
really and truly sad I was. My parents were my parents going through their own shit. My school system was shit. My friends were starting to, you know, talk about boys and do cheerleading and stuff that I didn't have the energy for. I would wake up with such heaviness inside of me. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to breathe. I felt stuck. I think I can honestly say that that is one of the worst feelings for me ever, being stuck. Feeling like you're trapped and have no control over anything, feeling suffocated, feeling like you'll always be there, like chained to a wall. It was depression. I didn't know that, but that's what it was. Back to, you know, the something's wrong with me thing. I was so young, and like I said, none of my friends were this sad. None of my friends broke their ankles with paperweights. The very first time I actually, like, cut myself, I was 11. I took one of those, like, pencil sharpeners and unscrewed the little screw and then took the razor blade out. I hate to say this, but the first time I did it, I felt so relieved. It's weird, and I still... I still don't really understand it 100%. It was like all of my pain inside got put on standby because I had a different pain to focus on. And it felt like a good pain. I think that this might be the first thing that I ever got addicted to. It's such like an adrenaline rush. Getting up to the point where a razor, like, slices through your skin. I thought it was beautiful to watch. I didn't tell anyone about that because I knew that there had to be something wrong with me for that. It felt like control. Just like, you know, how I watched the same movies and the same episodes of TV shows over and over and over and over again. Because I know what's going to happen. Nothing is going to take me by surprise. I know where the sad parts and the happy parts are. I know where the songs are going to play. I know. And that is having some control over it. In my out-of-control spiraling life, I never knew when the sad parts or the bad parts or the happy parts were. I know. How cliche. This felt like something... I could control in a very, very chaotic life. It was different from the disordered eating because that was something in the category of no control. This felt like full control. Except it really wasn't. I would get cravings for it, like with a drug craving. And I'd have to stop everything and go cut myself in the bathroom. And I have to be honest with you, this was about a 10-year struggle of me doing this. Started when I was 11. I'll spare you the more graphic details with that, but let's just say that it got really bad really fast. 
when you're a kid like that, it's like you have this secret that no one can know about except you. You wear long sleeves even in 90 degree weather, 108 degree weather. You don't go to pool parties. You are on constant alert to make sure no one knows about it. No one finds out about it. And no one ever did. Just like with any addiction, the more I did, the more I wanted. And the older I got while doing it, the more came into play. (sighs) Okay. Here's another story that's kind of funny, but kind of actually, like, sad. So, (laughs) you guys are like, oh, thanks. So, I've had this issue in the past of dislocating my jaw. (laughs) I know a specific person listening who knows exactly where this is going. Okay. The first time that I dislocated my jaw, I was at thespian convention my sophomore year of high school. I was laying on the floor. I yawned and my jaw got stuck for like a solid 30 seconds. But thankfully I got it to pop back into place. I was a little freaked out, but I didn't, it wasn't after, it wasn't until after the third time that this happened that I remembered that I did that. So I didn't even think anything of it. I was like, oh, that hurt. Okay. Anyways, back to being a thespian. Um, the second time I was yawning one night before bed, I yawned too wide and then boom, it was stuck. I couldn't close it. No one around me could help. I tried Googling how to unstick my jaw, but nothing helped. So we went to the ER. They shot me up with um, ketamine, which druggy Taylor loved that. Ketamine is the best trip I've ever had in all of my years of drugs. The best. (laughs) Anyways, um, this isn't about drugs, Taylor. Good grief. The third time was when I was living all alone in Colorado my senior year of high school. Maybe like two hours before it had happened, I was having just a mental breakdown in the bottom of my shower. I took a rusty razor blade, so that's really good, and just cut up my entire arm. This was a relapse because it had been so long since I had done it so long. This was my second semester of senior year and throughout the most, all of the, okay, so I had gotten sober and I stopped cutting and I stopped doing drugs that summer and I didn't start up again until that December and then this happened in like March, I think. Okay, anyways, so two hours later, post-breakdown, I was laying in bed I had just said goodnight to my friends in our group chat. I laid down, I yawned, and boom, stuck again. I started fucking panicking. <laughs> it was blizzarding outside, like actually full on blizzarding. The snowplows had not been out yet. I was alone because I lived alone. I didn't have a trusted adult around. I started full-fledged panicking. So I texted Collins, who was my ex at the time. He, we had broken up. I texted his mom at like, I don't even know what time this was, like 12, like midnight. 
I texted her and I was like, hey, are you up right now? A few minutes had gone by and she hadn't answered. So then I messaged my group chat. This is between my friend Danny. <laughs> hey, Danny. And Hannah Bilby, the love of my life. Um, I'm just going to read you some of my favorite messages of the night. So I messaged and said, guys, my jaw is stuck again in all caps. I actually scrolled through my Facebook messenger to find these messages from like two years ago. After not responding for a few minutes, Danny says, Taylor, please be alive. <laughs> I say, I'm trying to pop it back. And Hannah says, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> Later on, Hannah says, just so you know, I've never been to the hospital and I have no idea how anything there works. <laughs> then later on again, Hannah says, wait, I don't have my eyebrows on. <laughs> That's my favorite one. Also, Hannah, am I going to be disgusted? <laughs> She's talking about um, them putting my jaw back into place. Am I going to be disgusted? <laughs> also, Hannah, Taylor's in the hospital. And I'm taking BuzzFeed quizzes. <laughs> okay, well, literally... Going through all of that just to say that I was in the hospital with Hannah that night and the nurse asked me to take off my hoodie so that they could put the IV in. With all of the commotion of literally dislocating my jaw, I had like completely forgotten about my arm covered in cuts. The nurse very loudly gasped when she saw it. And I pretty much immediately started to cry. She kind of made a huge deal about it in front of Hannah, in front of anyone else in the room. She told me a story of a young boy about my age who came in earlier after a suicide attempt and how she's seen so many kids not make it. She asked me to promise her I wouldn't do it again. See, it's funny, but it's also sad. I don't know why that story means so much to me. Probably the whole, like, Hannah drove me to and took me to the hospital in a blizzard and then stayed my friend even after all of that. But also that the nurse, who I didn't even know, made me feel like she cared about me. I try not to have much shame in, like, talking openly about my struggles like this, but sometimes I get really embarrassed and my heart starts racing, like, right now. Because there are people who know me who know about this now they know this about me and that's like really terrifying but i'm also like openly talking about this on a very public platform so if i wanted that to change i probably shouldn't have talked about it but whatever you guys know now the rest of the night actually ended up being kind of scary because just like the other time they filled me up with ketamine street name special k uh, they use it to tranquilize horses. It's a horse tranquilizer. Well, the first time, I weighed almost 75 pounds more than I did that time. And when I came in, the hospital didn't weigh me before they gave me ketamine. They just used what weight was on my file the last time. I woke up hooked up to oxygen hooked up to heart monitors, I was laying flat on my back. I started panicking then, too, because I was like, what the fuck is happening? They told me they had accidentally given me too much and that my, my, my body was not having a good time. So, like, 
a dislocated jaw and a drug overdose all in one night. It was fantastic. So, uh, speaking of drug overdose, <laughs> see that nice little segue I did there? Yeah. Okay. I've talked a little about my addictive nature. I get addicted to literally everything, everything, which is terrifying. But at the same time, it's different now because I know about it. I didn't know that I was an addict when I drank my first sip of alcohol or did my first drug. I didn't know why everyone else could stop, but I just wanted more. I didn't know that when my dad beat me so bad I could barely walk, the painkillers they gave me would change my life forever. I didn't know. Pills were my drug of choice. I loved them. All of them. You could swallow them, you could crush them, you could snort them, any and all pills. And I have such a high tolerance, which is not safe to have when you are someone who constantly wants more and more. Vicodin, shout out, <laughs> sponsor me. Vicodin, <laughs> sleeping pills, Hydros, Xanax, anything that came in that orange bottle. Anything. It all started when my friend's family gave me some Vicodin after that night with my dad because we were like 90% sure that my wrist was broken. But I was on his insurance. I wasn't allowed to go to the doctor. That's a whole nother story. They gave me a bag full of it, like a Ziploc bag full of just Vicodin. And of course, it's not, it's not their fault at all for the way I handled it. They didn't know. I didn't know. But I finished that bag in a few days. Just one after the other after the other. And I was instantly hooked. This was no... After about four months of doing it, I needed more. It was instant after the very first pill. And it was terrifying because of how much my body just fell into this. Anytime I went over to a friend's house after that, especially that friend's house, I was searching through their bathroom cabinets for more pills. Anything I could find. And I didn't know what some names meant. I mean, they're really long and you have no idea what they mean 90% of the time. So I'd Google them. If it came up as like pain pill or sleeping pill or anything like that, I'd take them. It must have honestly sucked to be a pill head like me back in the day before like Google on your phones. Because if you didn't know what it meant, would you just take it anyway? I feel like I might have. If, like, I didn't have Google, I would have been like, well, okay, I'll just take it anyways. Any pill heads out there? Let me know. <laughs> Let me comment down below if you know the answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yikes. If you happen to be a friend I had back then, anyone before I got sober, before my senior year of high school, here's my open confession to going through your bathroom cabinets for pills. It's quite embarrassing. It's not something I'm proud of. It's not like I go around and I'm like, oh my god, yeah, I just went through everybody's cabinets for some pills. And to be honest, this is the even more embarrassing part. I can't even remember who I stole from and who I didn't. So I can't even reach out to you 
to apologize to you directly, which is also embarrassing. So, so sorry. I loved them. I still see the orange bottles, though, and sometimes, like, catch myself just looking at it like, should I? But I don't. Day to day, I have to remind myself that I'm just, I'm built differently. And I can't just take one. I have to remind myself every morning that I'm an addict. Dax says that all the time. And I think it's really important for people to know that. It's not just a one day you wake up and decide you're not going to do it anymore. You don't have to struggle with it anymore. It is every day. It is constantly having to remind myself, you can't do that. You can't drink that. You can't smoke that. You can't have that because, like, once again, like Dax says, if you don't have sobriety, you don't have anything. Alcohol was an issue, but not as much as pills. My problem with alcohol came in because when I drank it, I couldn't stop at one drink, but I wanted to mix. So I couldn't stop drinking, but anytime I did drink, I always had to have pills with it. And anytime I popped pills, I couldn't stop that either. (laughs) So just again, a very slippery slope here. There was this um, high school party I went to my junior year in Colorado. It was way the fuck out there in mountains somewhere at this, like, cabin that they rented. Something out of a movie. Like, how do teenagers even rent cabins like that? I don't know. But, again, just, like, out of a movie, there were dozens of people there. I mean, just, like, the high school parties that they show in the movies. All of us, keg stands, gummy bears soaked in alcohol, this person, of course. I drank so much watermelon vodka that night, it's not even funny. I can't even say the word watermelon before I, like, gag, like, a reflex. That's how much of it I drank that night. A lot of people are like that with, what is it, the sky vodka? That one, too. Nope. Can't do it. Can't even think about it. And then the geniuses there, of course, high schoolers, decided to throw all of the alcohol into this giant tub. It wasn't even a bowl. A giant tub. You had beer, vodka, Mike's Hard, whiskey, just everything in there. And we were using our plastic cups to scoop out a drink with their dirty hands after doing whatever. It was so disgusting. But, like, that's what you do when you drink, I guess. We were all so fucked up that night. And it was somebody's birthday. So then we sang happy birthday to somebody. And we were all like, happy birthday. (laughs) Anyways, okay. I snuck into the bedroom I was staying in that night. Because all of us had a bedroom to stay. Because... They weren't very smart about their alcohol mixing decisions, but at least they were smart to not let anybody drive. Yeah, I snuck into that bedroom, and I sat on the bed, and I just remember crying. Crying and crying and crying, and I couldn't understand why. I was supposed to be having fun at this party. Sitting in the hot tub and talking with people, dancing, playing games, laughing... But I wasn't focused on any of that. I just wanted to drink. 
I was avoiding talking to people to get more in my cup. And just like before, I had stopped crying and my eyes sort of zoomed in on my bag. And in a very, like, x-ray vision way, I saw in my memory where I had stashed my bottle of pills. It was a mixed bottle of pills. I had hydros from years ago, from whenever I broke my wrist or whatever, like Vicodin, and then the rest of the bottle was like 80% Xanax. My God, my heart, again, just dropped a little because I don't think I've told anyone this story. And now, like, here I am telling the entire world. I went to my bag, ripped it open, and then swallowed the entire bottle of pills. All of them. And then I just threw it on the floor like I didn't care. And normally that's the part where people, like, lay down on the bed and, like, wait to die or something. But because I was really drunk, I remembered that it was snowing outside. And in my drunken state, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to see the snow before I die tonight. And I got up. I walked through the party without anyone noticing me because they were all too fucked up to know. I Then I went outside. Outside in the freezing Colorado snow, way out in BFE in the mountains in this cabin, and I walked through the forest, like, around this cabin. I was just walking around. I was looking up at the stars and the snow and literally just walking. Because like I said, I have an amazing sense of direction. I didn't get lost. I didn't meet up with a bear. I found my way back to the cabin and then laid down on the bed in that room and closed my eyes and just waited to die. This person came into the room with a love interest and was kind of like halted by the fact that I was there. They sat on the bed anyways, though, and then they kind of noticed I was out of it. They noticed the pills on the floor. So they picked up the bottle and threw it at me. Yelling at me like, what the fuck did you do? Are you kidding me right now? How much did you take? And I, when I refused to tell them, they just told me, I'm not calling a fucking ambulance for you, so you better figure your shit out. And then they took their love interest and went back to the party. Maybe like 20 minutes later after laying in there, the alcohol hit me like right in the stomach. I couldn't see, my vision was all blurry, but I somehow stumbled into the bathroom and then threw up everything. Everything from that morning, anything I ate that night, everything I ate at the party, all of the pills, I was throwing up for an hour. But I was alive. The next morning, though, I felt like ten times worse. And I hate to admit it this, but that's not the first time I've ever tried to die. I was reckless. I didn't necessarily say that I wanted to die, but I didn't act like I wanted to live. And I can't even tell you how many suicide attempts I've had in my life since I was 11. I've lost count. 
that's sad as hell, but I am trying to be as honest as I can with you. I did it more than I would like to admit. Sometimes I'd go a year without trying, but then sometimes there would be more than one attempt in a year. I always have had this fear of death, but I flirted with it so much. I never wore my seatbelt in the car. I took as many drugs as I wanted at a time. I was careless. I was careless. It was never really, I want to die. It was, I don't want to live like this anymore, and I don't know how to make it better. Like I've said tons of times by now, I was never given the tools to handle such big emotions. And so the emotions really handled me. I still have a shit ton of big emotions to handle that sometimes I don't know how to. When things go bad, sometimes I do think I just went out. But it's not as prominent of a thing anymore because I just, I don't know. I've been to therapy. I have better coping mechanisms. Just like every day I wake up and remind myself that I'm an addict, I remind myself, you have always been suicidal, but you're going to overcome it because life is beautiful and you have too much to live for. Maybe I won't ever not feel that way, just like maybe I won't ever not feel like I have to remind myself that I'm an addict. This episode was really important to me because mental health is so important now and forever. I didn't want to talk about any of these things. I didn't want anyone to hear this part of my story and think that I'm weak or tell me to, like, keep my nose clean or anything like that. I was scared of what people would think of me if I admitted to these things. Especially my family. Oh, dear God, I'm so sorry that you had to listen to all of that. But I decided to do it because I wish there was someone like that when I was younger. You know, when I was nine years old, breaking my ankle, when I was 11, cutting myself for the first time, I wish there had been someone who was open and honest about their struggles. I wish mental health hadn't been so taboo. So maybe you are struggling with it. Maybe you think you're literally insane, that something is wrong with you because your friends can keep drinking, but you have an issue. Maybe you've struggled with self-harm or suicidal thoughts or feelings. You're not insane. There's nothing wrong with you. Your mental health is not a death sentence. We would never tell a cancer patient that they're insane and that there's something wrong with them for having cancer. There are ways to get help, whether that's therapy, which I highly recommend, or going to yoga or pouring yourself into your artistry or whatever it is. There is a way out, and I promise, I promise that it gets better. It is no secret by now that I love Armchair Expert more than life itself. One episode in particular that really, really helped me, helped influence this episode. It changed my life. I mean, like, not really like, OMG, everything is different now, but... 
in the way that I look at people and myself. So Dax and Monica have this wonderful woman on. Her name is Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. She is currently the Surgeon General of California. So off of the website, here is her description. Dr. Nadine Burke Harris is an award-winning physician, researcher, and advocate dedicated to changing the way our society responds to one of the most serious, expensive, and widespread public health crises of our time, childhood trauma. She was appointed as California's first ever Surgeon General by Governor Gavin Newsom in January 2019. In case you don't know, ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, which a lot of people just refer to as trauma. So, in her research, she's found that the ACEs people have experienced in their lifetime may contribute to a hell of a lot of things as they grow older. Mental health issues, health issues, the way you communicate with people, what diseases you may be at risk for. I, this is like my party starter conversation. Like, I will bring up, I'm like, so do you know your ACEs score? Like, (laughs) this is really embarrassing, but like, and not to dedicate a whole episode to what Dax and Monica did, but I think the topic of ACE is so important. It's not to be like, oh, my ACE score is five, so that's why I am the way that I am. It's more to say, my ACE score is five, and here's what I have to be careful with and look out for in life because of what I've been through and how that makes me more susceptible to other things. So here's a little description for you. The ACE score shows an individual's likelihood of developing adult chronic disease. As your ACE score increases, so does the risk for the development of emotional, psychological, physical chronic disease, and social dysfunction. With a score of four or more, the percentages rise dramatically. The chances of developing chronic obstructive pulmonary lung disease increase 390%. The chances of developing hepatitis increase 240%. The chances of developing depression increase 460%. And get this. The chance of an attempted suicide increase 1,220%. Your ACE score could help you figure out more about yourself in so many different ways. I mean, the higher your score, the more you are at risk for just about everything. So, let's play a little game. (laughs) My God. Let's play... Find out our childhood traumas. (laughs) Okay. So I'll read you the questions off of this, like, questionnaire I found on NPR. It is a score out of 10. So with each question I ask you, keep count for the ones that you say yes to. You ready? Okay. Number one. Before your 18th birthday, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt. Number two, before your 18th birthday, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? 
Number three, before your 18th birthday, did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touched their body in a sexual way or attempt or actually have oral, anal, or vaginal intercourse with you? Number four, before your 18th birthday, did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special, or your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other? Number five, before your 18th birthday, did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you, or your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or take you to the doctor if you needed it. Number six, before your 18th birthday, was a biological parent ever lost to you through divorce, abandonment, or other reason? Before your 18th birthday, was your mother or stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, or sometimes often or very often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or knife. Number eight, before your 18th birthday, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who used street drugs? Number nine, before your 18th birthday, was a household member depressed or mentally ill or did a household member attempt suicide? Number 10. Before your 18th birthday, did a household member go to prison? So, add up your yes answers, and that number is your ACE score. I think that this number is so fucking important and can help people know just what it is that you need to look out for. Are you more susceptible to depression, teen pregnancy, smoking, liver disease, perpetrating domestic violence, being a victim of rape, alcoholism? I will be open and honest like I've been throughout this entire series and let you know that my ACEs score is 9. When I found out about this on Armchair Expert, my head just exploded. It all started to make sense. I wasn't crazy. I wasn't insane. There wasn't something wrong with me. My trauma, or in this case, my adverse childhood experiences, predisposed me to have these issues from the get-go. It also tells us that the first half of a child's life is so important for their development and the issues they'll come to face later in life. I hope this has influenced you as much as it has influenced me in the way I look at myself, other people, and just the world. Imagine how much we could do if we implemented these ACE scores into so many parts of our lives. Just like, imagine what we could do for children before they reach the age of 18. Something to think about. One day, you will look back and be so glad you chose to keep going even without knowing how everything would turn out. You'll be glad you rose above the doubt that your significance was too small. You will be glad you did not give up, 
and you chose to give your all. Morgan Harper Nichols, 